Hey everyone, before we get into today's podcast, I want to share that InfoQ's International Software Development Conference, QCOM, will be back in San Francisco in the US from October 2nd to 6th. QCOM will share real-world technical talks from senior software development practitioners, you'll learn about their successes, their failures, and you'll also see how to apply emerging patterns and practices to address some of your challenges too. Learn more at QCOMSF.com, I'll be there running the platform engineering track, and I hope to see you there. Hello and welcome to the InfoQ podcast. My name is Daniel Bryant and today I had the pleasure of sitting down with Tracy Miranda to talk about all things secure software supply chain. We look at the actual foundations of this, we look at things like software bill of materials, SBOMs, we also look at SALSA and other acronyms you may have heard in this space and Tracy goes super deep into what those mean and how to get started with, with dealing with secure supply chains. I've known Tracy for many years now from my work at ChainGuard, from my work at CloudBees and I was super excited to have this conversation. So welcome to the InfoQ podcast, Tracy. Could you introduce yourself to the listeners, please? Hi, Daniel. Thanks so much for having me. My name is Tracy Miranda, and yeah, I'm a technology leader and a veteran of open source. So I've worked at a number of different companies, including CloudBees, ChainGuard, the Continuous Delivery Foundation, and the common theme has always been open source. Fantastic. Now, you and I talked on the podcast officially, I think, two years ago. A lot has happened since then, Tracy, right? What do you think is the biggest problem in the security space that developers face today? Yeah, and it's a super interesting space, and I've definitely been drawn into it more and more. And I think the big takeaway is that there isn't one problem, and that's kind of the problem, that tackling security in software is actually solving multiple different problems all at the same time and just doing one won't get you there so yeah it's pretty tricky because it's a space where if you try to simplify it or underestimate it you're just not going to get something effective fantastic do you think devops and those kind of approaches have helped over the years because now we're seeing like what i think it's 13 15 years devops has been around like is it making a difference to the collaboration say across the teams in regards to security Yeah, I think it's really interesting, like with DevOps and folks tend to talk a lot about like breaking down silos between teams and you've got that shift left phrase, which, you know, I'm not a fan of, but it sort of highlights the fact that things are moving earlier in the pipeline. But security actually has been pretty resistant to a lot of those patterns. It's been super hard to shift left security as such, like it's still seen as a very top-down type of approach, security teams and infrastructure teams aren't as sort of well gelled as, as they need to be to support each other effectively. So I think we're still in the early days. I think, you know, the whole DevOps and we've had the DevSecOps iteration, but there's still a long, long way to go on that road. But the good thing is that we do seem to be heading as an industry in the right direction, albeit maybe a bit slower than we need to be. No, I think that's IT in general, right? We are generally going in the right direction, but we like to loop around. And was it history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes quite a lot, right? <laughs> and when I see some of these things pop up, I'm like, oh, we've had that before. But I did want to, before we dive into some of the supply chain stuff, Tracy, I did want to briefly ask about platform engineering. So one thing I've seen with platform engineering, and particularly team topologies, my buddies, Matthew and Manuel, is really force folks to think about decentralized versus centralized ops. So some responsibilities go on to the platform team, some responsibilities are going to push out decentralized developers. Like, Have you seen any of that emerging? And I'd love to get your thoughts on, is platform engineering a thing in the security community? Yes, no, absolutely. I think the way people are thinking about platform engineering is the right move forward. And a lot of the companies who are 
taking security seriously, it tends to be those platform engineers who are the ones looking at things, the other ones sort of saying, okay, we are responsible for pulling in various bits of open source and turning it into this platform. How do we make sure that it's going to be secure? How do we make sure it's not going to be compromised by a supply chain attack? So yeah, I think definitely security platform engineering, if you like. <laughs> the next level. <laughs> Good approach. But yeah, the intersection of those worlds is where some of the most interesting work is happening at the moment. Fantastic. So you mentioned about supply chains there, Tracy. I'd love to get your thoughts on, is that the most sort of interesting place to focus at the moment? Because we hear a lot about S-bombs. I'm sure we can dive into that later on as well. But yeah, why has the software supply chain sort of caught the attention, uh, the security attention at least, of developers at the moment? Yeah, it's really interesting because for a long time, there's a lot of focus on application security. And you can almost say we did a decent job in different communities that it became harder and harder to attack applications. And actually, the supply chain then became the weakest link. So you would have people, you know, just not really protecting their CICD systems, not treating them in the same way they would with production system. So this became a real vulnerability. And then there were a couple of really famous attacks, like the solar wind compromise, uh, probably one of the big flashpoints that triggered a lot of saying, okay, we need to take this seriously. And then the more people started looking at it and saying, okay, let's investigate the threat models around your CICD or your supply chain, the more it was like, oh dear, like this is <laughs> bad and the potential number of things that could happen. It's quite a big list and it's something like, you know, we're starting to see the chickens come home to roost on some of the bad practices around securing your CICD pipeline and also where and how you're getting open source that you're pulling into your products and applications. Yeah, great. So we do see a lot of mention of software bill of materials, SBOMs. And I know you and I were talking off mic, a lot of folks, that's SBOMs, SALSA, it's all these acronyms, right? And I know we all love acronyms, but could you break down some of those things for us and help us actually understand why should I as a developer be interested in a software bill of materials? Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, we're still in the early days of trying to figure out, you know, what does an ideal secure stack look like? And there's a number of really interesting technologies that are emerging and each are trying to tackle different spaces. So one of my favorites in the last few years has been the Sigstore project, which is like the new version of GPG and kind of really gives a fresh developer-oriented view to software signing. So absolutely look at that. Python and NPM have all adopted it. Safe to say that's going to be one of the building blocks. And then you mentioned Salsa and we're seeing that resonate. It's a framework which you can use to kind of think about the different threats and methodically work through the different ways to secure your supply chain. So it's a really nice focused framework that gives you a starting point and some different levels to work through. So that's pretty useful. And then maybe the third S is S-bombs, which is yeah totally really, really interesting. This S-bombs get a lot of buzz. Everybody wants to know about them. There's a lot of hype associated with them. And yeah, we could spend a lot of time talking about them. But yeah, for those not familiar, it's a software bill of materials. And it's looking to be a format for which you can describe exactly what components go into a piece of software. And if you think about it, like it's a pretty fundamental problem. Like if you go and talk to companies and if you go and talk to open source projects and you say, can you tell me what software you're running and where you got it from? You think that would be a pretty basic question, right? Turns out it's super hard and it's super difficult. And all these big companies and small companies 
actually don't really know what they're running and they don't know where it came from and they don't know whether it's liable to specific vulnerabilities. And the log4j vulnerability, yeah, that kind of highlighted that in a really stark way that nobody's got this full inventory of what they're running and it's a major, major problem. Mm, I'd love to dive in perhaps how folks should get started with that kind of thing. Tracy, but first, though, you and I off mic were talking about sort of adoption rates of these things. And you mentioned the US government, Department of Homeland Security, is getting involved in this. And it's not often we see government agencies get involved with software engineering, at least not yet, right? So I'd love to know a bit more about that. What's the Department of Homeland Security doing in relation to SBOMs? Yes. So there's the famous executive order, I think it's two or three years ago now. And this was the response to cybersecurity. And it's one of the first executive orders that mentioned open source. I think it mentions it about four times. But part of the crux of it was that that order really honed in on software bill of materials as a key part of the solution, so like the base of the stack. And it tells us a couple of interesting things. One side is that the U.S. government is really seeing that as a fundamental piece of the puzzle and really is betting that we need innovations and we need developments there. And that's what's going to be the key to solving things, whether or not industry agrees with that. It has been pretty controversial and there have been mixed reviews to that. But yeah, if I can share a bit more. So it's not just an order, but like the US government has taken it one step further and they're actually conducting a pretty interesting experiment. You could sort of say it's a 1.4 million US dollar experiment. (laughs) The Department of Homeland Security actually set up an innovation program where it invited companies to apply for funding for SBOM projects in open source. So they're putting their money where their mouth is. And so they said, okay, we want people to develop technology and do it in open source. And it's all got to move the state of the art of SBOMs forward. Now, the really interesting thing that they did with this grant is that they required every company that applied and would be successful was obliged to work on a common tool. And specifically, like one of the tools is a multi-format SBOM translator. So it was like, okay, we're going to give you 200K to write some tools, but we all want you to work and collaborate on a tool that's going to solve the SBOM format. Was this kind of two main formats? And it's a bit of a sticking point at the moment, like which format do you even start with? So yeah, so not all these companies are that familiar with open source. There were seven companies awarded things in total, and now they're all going to work together and come together and work on open source tooling. And actually, the first version is already out. It's called Protobomb. And yeah, it's aiming to be like the Switzerland of SBOM format using protocol buffers. And it's a super interesting project to watch. I know Adolfo Puerkovecchia and John Speed Mayers, two of my former colleagues, are doing some great work with the community and leading people there. So yeah, definitely one I'm keeping an eye on. Fantastic. As you mentioned about the US government, I suddenly have flashbacks to the healthcare.gov debacle. <laughs> as much as I very much admire President Obama's direction there, there was a famous stories at various conferences talked about the challenges of getting all these different teams working together. But you've said so far, the independent folks that have come together around this format, they are actually collaborating. They are making progress. Yeah. So it's interesting to see there is a first working version and it seems to be progressing steadily. So yeah, fingers crossed, this could be one that actually pays off and is good for the wider ecosystem. So definitely, yeah, one to watch. Fantastic. Can interested listeners get involved, Tracy? Like, Can they, I guess, even just watch what's going on, but can they contribute in any way? Or Absolutely. So the idea is that they do want to build this and open it up in a sustainable way. 
So the cohort has put together some community guidelines. They are developing it as open source. And yeah, contributions are welcome. So yeah, I can get you the URL and I'm sure they'd welcome more eyes on it and people getting involved. And yeah, I think the URL is pretty fun. It's on github.com and it's bomb squad, B-O-M. <laughs> nice. And yeah, Protobomb is the project itself. So yeah, I encourage folks to check it out and I'm sure they'd welcome help and involvement. Yeah, I must confess, I'd not heard of that project. That sounds fantastic. You mentioned the conversation there about two different formats. I have bumped into that when I've been playing around with SBOMs with Docker, because I know Docker's got an integrated command. I love build packs. I was messing around with build packs and trying to generate SBOMs, that kind of thing. Did bump into some of this. Could you briefly outline for the listeners what the two competing formats are? And is it a kind of VHS Betamax situation? Will there be a clear winner, do you think? Yeah, so the two main ones are SPDX, and folks might know that as the Formac, I think it's Software Package Data Exchange. So it sort of came from the licensing world. And then Cyclone DX is the other one. I will add, like, those are the two main formats, but there's also specific versions of them, and they also have encoding. So even with those formats, there's a lot of variability it's funny because the last time I was on the podcast, like my thing is interoperability and yeah. simplifying things. And, <laughs> and this is one space like we don't want to get that wrong. You know, we think the two different things have different approaches. And, you know, some people will say Cyclone DX is simpler if you're getting started, but SPDX has a wealth of metadata that allows you to do rich specifications. But I think if you take a step back, they're 80% very, very similar and it's not great for people in the industry to come in and try to deal with the inventory problem, try to deal with software supply chain, and they're stuck at the first hurdle. And unfortunately, part of it ends up in a bit of religious format was something we totally need to avoid. And I think that's why folks are excited about Protobomb, because I think it will sidestep a lot of that. That's the hope. Hopefully it doesn't just put out yet another format. <laughs> I'm thinking of the XKCD cartoon where there's like, we've got 17 plus one standards, right? But no, I think yeah, it's fantastic. Like it's good aspirations, right? And it's something I'll definitely check out after the call and have a look around. Protobuf is obviously a fantastic spec. So like that is a good start to be building from, right? Yes. And I think like it's fair to say, like if we think about where we are with SBOMs today and people use the sort of crawl, walk, run analogy, definitely as an industry in a crawl stage, like very few people are producing them, even if they're producing them, they're hardly spec compliant. And it's a long way to go to making them useful. But that being said, I'm a firm believer that you do want an interoperable spec that everybody can use and subscribe to. So I'm hopeful it can be a good bottom of the stack for software supply chain security. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, in my little world with Kubernetes, sort of the YAML specs have actually enabled quite a bit of like interesting like foundations to build upon, right? If we can all agree on a foundation of a stanza of a spec, it just means that we can focus on more interesting problems. So I think it's fantastic. Just dialing it back a little bit, Tracy, if, as a developer, if we're looking to get started with SBOMs, have you got any like recommendations, any sites, books, tools to play around with? How should I, as a developer that's interested in this, how should I start playing around with this stuff? I think it depends a little on maybe which ecosystem you're in. Like I think if you're in the Go ecosystem, that's your well set up there. It goes a really lovely language and it provides you a lot of the metadata around building up SBOMs and fun tools like the co-build tool will, will spit you out an SBOM as part of the build, which is really nice. But yeah, in general, I think picking one of the different formats and kind of subscribing to that ecosystem. If you're in the cloud native space, I will say check out the BOMB tool, which is the tool like Kubernetes uses to produce its SBOM. And I think a few other cloud native tools use that. So I think that's a really good starting point to play around with that. Fantastic. And the next kind of question I jump to these days is like, 
it's easy to do bottom-up adoption, right? How do I get that top-down buy-in? How do I, as a say, engineering manager, as a leader, get the exec buy-in? Because you kind of need that, right? For this organization-wide security approach, you need that exec buy-in. I know this is a big question, but have you got any advice on how to like get this kind of SBOM adoption and what benefits it offers to the leadership, to the business? One of the things with SBOMs, like part of the controversy around it, is that there's a lot of talk of regulations and top-down requirements being mandated, certainly by the US government or even other governments. And that's received a lot of pushback. And I'll say it's kind of limited and it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Like You want to require people to have SBOMs, but the tooling and the standards and the things makes it really difficult. Yeah, but I think just going back to the fundamental problems organizations need to solve, like just thinking about the fact you just don't know, like you can't run that software inventory. I think highlighting that that's so fundamental. There's a couple of organizations, I think, who will move forward. And certainly the big cloud providers, I think, will start leading the way. So and I'm hoping it will be a case of using that FOMO just to show what other people are doing with SBOMs and just pushing along and having everybody start producing them. We were talking off mic, Tracy, about a very interesting case study you had with eBay and SBOMs. I'd love to hear a bit more about that, if that's possible, please. Yeah, about a year ago, I had the pleasure of speaking to Justin Abrams at eBay and just learning more about their SBOM strategy and the practical considerations they were facing. And it was a super fascinating conversation. So what they shared was, you know, SBOMs are a key part of their wider software supply chain security initiative. And they have a code base, which multiple languages, so Java and JavaScript, and JavaScript is always something, (laughs) a few more concerns around. So a couple of things they shared. So one was that formats didn't really matter to them. They were able to generate SBOMs in multiple formats, so both SPDX and Cyclone DX. And as far as they were concerned, the file sizes were pretty small. And they had two key consumers. So one was the security teams, which I think lots of people expect and are familiar with, and they wanted to use the SBOMs for vulnerability management. But the other one, which I hadn't come across before, was they saw as an internal consumer was their OSPO, so their open source program office. And the OSPO was interested in using the SBOMs to understand which dependencies they were reliant on, and then doing health checks on those and maybe thinking about... Yeah, if we're using this open source project, is it healthy? Should we help sustain it? Should we be contributing? So yeah, I thought that was a pretty fascinating way to use SBOMs. And in general, they also did a lot of work on SBOM quality, and that was pretty interesting. Mm, I'd love to know a bit more about SBOM quality, actually. Can you break that down for us? So there's a lot of questions about how useful are SBOMs and what is the quality. Unfortunately, like in the case of eBay, they found that it was pretty poor, that (laughs) even the SBOMs they could find out there weren't even spec compliant. But another aspect of it I find, and this is more general, is that a lot of the SBOMs we have generated today are what I would call like guest bombs. <laughs> oh, no. Yes, they're generated by scanner tools, which are trying to introspect the final archive, like the artifacts. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And trying to come up with complicated rules to sort of say, I think this is what it's made up for, which is just not really useful. And there's a bunch of research on how this just leads to all sorts of confusion. And you might even have WordPress artifacts, which don't say they have WordPress in them or, you know, just totally weird things because the scanners can't always pick them up. So I think one of the things that's going to be important for the industry is like, if you want to take SBOM seriously, they really have to come from the base tools themselves. So the build tools 
and either by capturing that build information or being able to generate them. And again, the Go ecosystem is a good example of an area where a lot of that data is captured and you can make pretty accurate S-bombs for Go. But yeah, I think a lot of other ecosystems may need to consider, you know, how do we do that? And as an industry, I think we need to be thinking about more, you know, how do we take a step back and, you know, stop trying to generate these guest bombs and thinking they're going to get us there, but go back to basics and look at our fundamental tools and ecosystems and work out how we can propagate that information through the compilers, perhaps even. Mm. That's a final question. Something sort of rattled around my brain a little bit, Tracy, because my background is very much Java and then, you know, a lot of Kubernetes and Docker and that kind of thing. What's the interplay there between the language and, say, the packaging format, which I deploy applications? Do the S-bombs take into account both things? Because I've got, obviously, libraries in my Java app and I've got libraries in the OS, right, on the actual container. I'd love to know a bit more about the interplay there. Yeah, and I think, like, what you're touching on, like, one of the challenges with SBOMs is all related to kind of naming. So how do you identify a specific package? Is it a library? Or is it something else? What's its version? Is it the one, is it the log4j package, which has, you know, the vulnerabilities or not? And that gets into another can of worms of different formats for software identification and a couple of different approaches which tackle things differently. So while it seems like on the surface, maybe SBOMs should be a simple problem, at the end of the day, it's like a big data problem. You've got information about the naming, information about the packages, information about where it came from. And we really need that to be more structured and to be able to be used in a more powerful way. And we're not there yet, but I think I'm hopeful that we can, you know, stop operating at a pretty low level and start getting to just more sophisticated tooling and structure. And yeah, street SBOMs like the big data problem it is. Mm, you mentioned big data there, Tracy. I've kind of got to ask, right? Is there any place for AI here? I, mean, I always hate myself for saying it, right? But do you know what I mean? Because you want to be careful. Like, you don't want to probabilistically assume because you mentioned like the guest bombs, right? So LLM is probably out, for example. But is there anything, you know, do you see any future for AI to be involved in this space? Yeah, if I step back to the wider software supply chain, I think that there are a few places for AI. I think we have to be careful because in general, like, AI is not going to be a silver bullet. If you think about, we traditionally have not been good at securing software. So what's all this AI being trained on? You know, not. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a really good point. <laughs> but there's some interesting projects. And I think the Google security team, the Ghost team, like they were looking at using AI for like open source fuzzing and maybe doing that at scale. And so that's super fascinating. So I do think there will be some interesting applications, but yeah, definitely not across the board and nothing's going to be there's no sort of silver bullets magic yeah. notification. Yeah, it makes that sense. I definitely heard your message there of sort of foundational and like the run, was it sort of the crawl, walk, run? Totally makes sense with something like security. We need to be like super thorough in this kind of approach, right? And AI sometimes is a bit more fun rather than thorough, right? So I totally hear you on that. It's been fantastic, Tracy. We've covered, you know, the world there in terms of S-bombs, why we should do it and how we should do it, these things. Is there any final comment there you'd like to make? Anything I've missed at all? No, I think it's a great area. I do think software security is a bit of an existential threat, <laughs> especially like in the world of open source. So I think it's as boring as it might seem or as painful as it might seem. I do encourage everyone to get involved, to start asking questions, and to start pushing for, for change, the right kind of change in the right direction. And I'm a strong believer that, you know, the open source communities have a way of coming together and tackling really big problems. So I'm confident that can happen in this case. Superb, Tracy. If folks want to reach out, get involved, chat more with you, where's the best place to find you online? 
yeah, just find me either on LinkedIn, I'm Tracy Miranda, or on Twitter, slash X, I'm also there too. Perfect. Thanks for your time today, Tracy. Thanks. Yeah, pleasure to be here. And yeah, love talking about software security.